If you're just tuning in, I suggest you go back and start listening from chapter one. Before we start, a content warning. This episode contains graphic accounts of gun violence, as well as domestic and sexual violence. Alright, so last week we did a high-level look at all of the corroborating evidence April has to support her case. Uh, Two witnesses we mentioned, Dr. Joseph Schecht and Dr. Mark Tedder. Uh, They were mentioned, but we didn't deep dive their testimony, and so I just want to give some quick highlights of each of these doctors, and that, um, that is that they treated April throughout her relationship with Terry, including the post-Italy rape through 1996 and 1997. And each of these doctors independently confirms that April told them it was Terry Carlton who caused her injuries. The last witness we need to discuss delivers probably some of the most devastating testimony for April in this entire case. Unfortunately, it comes straight from her own expert, Dr. John Call. This is Panic Button, Episode 10, The John Call Disaster. I'm Leslie Briggs. And I'm Colleen McCarty. Before we jump into the actual testimony, we need to go back to April's cross-examination. So during April's cross, Tim Harris attempts to use notes from Dr. Call's expert witness file to question April about other prior bad acts by her, which had not been introduced or opened on direct examination. Specifically, Dr. Call has a note that mentions April dry-firing a gun at Terry in April of 1997 about a year before the shooting. Now, of course, Lyons objects and states that Harris is violating Burks, and Burks is a case that basically says the state of Oklahoma has got to give you 10 days notice if they're going to attempt to introduce prior criminal acts by a defendant. That way, the defense can investigate and maybe file a motion in limine to get the the information excluded. And Lyons is uh, upset enough about what happens here to move for a mistrial, but that's not granted. Generally speaking, there are a lot of rules about when and how defendants' previous bad behavior, particularly violent criminal behavior, can come into a trial. It's one of the great pillars of our trial-by-jury system. We don't want juries to reach erroneous conclusions based on what is sometimes called propensity evidence or character evidence. So for Tim Harris to try to squeeze this in here feels a lot like playing dirty. Yeah, I mean, Harris uses the expert witness to get several completely unsupported anecdotes into the record in front of the jury, and we're going to deep dive that in a moment. But all these statements just like hang out there in front of the jury, dick in the wind style, distracting them from the task at hand and leading them straight to an erroneous conclusion, Uh, which is the very reason, right, that this stuff isn't supposed to come in. So during Cross, there's a Chambers conference held. And a lot of back and forth happens about the purpose of introducing this alleged dry firing of a gun incident. Sorry, just a quick interjection here that I think the listeners need to know there is not one piece of evidence in this case that we have seen to corroborate that April ever dry fired a gun at Terry. Uh, Dr. Call's source in his notes is apparently a police report, but we've made an Open Records Act request to the Tulsa police, and the reports we've received do not mention this at all. It's possible he's talking about the time that she fired on him when she was trying to defend herself against the rape in April of 1998, but that's not at all corroborated because he says 1997. 
And that's um, February of 98. That's right. The way that well, See, we all get confused about that. We all get confused. That. Sorry, Dr. Officer Bennett. I didn't mean to be so hard on you last time. So, yeah, I mean, it's super important because it's just kind of like, what the fuck? And then Tim Harris never proves it, and there's no evidence to support it. And I don't know if the Tulsa Police Department is holding out on me because they literally only gave me five pages of information that represents five different police reports from this time period. But I can only take the information at face value and believe that they've been forthright about all the documentation that they have and are able to release. So... During the Chambers conference about whether Tim Harris will get to ask April about dry firing a gun, there's a back and forth about the purpose and what is and isn't permissible under the law. A lot of the discussion centers on whether Dr. Call relied on this note in formulating his opinion of April as suffering from battered women's syndrome. And we're going to give you the highlights of Dr. Call's testimony and opinion in a minute, but in the midst of this Chambers conference which is taking place during a break in April's cross-examination, Chris Lyons tells the court that he never read Dr. Call's file. So let me repeat that. April's defense attorney had not familiarized himself with his own expert's file. Like, why would you pay someone to produce expert testimony and then not read it? That doesn't make sense. Nope. It sure doesn't. And I, I want to actually go ahead and read the exchange. I want us to like act it out a little bit here. Um, where Lyons reveals this to the court. And uh, do you want to be Lyons or do you want to be the court? I want to be the court. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Perfect. Um, So I'll start. I'm Chris Lyons. Well, and of course, I'm not familiar with his files, so I don't, and I haven't. You're not familiar with Dr. Call's files? Uh, No, sir, I'm not. I've never read it. Okay. As an officer of the court. Oh, I... I believe you if you tell me. I state that to you. I'm just surprised because I noticed Mr. Harris has been very familiar with it. Well, I didn't make a copy for myself. That's fine. I simply gave it back to Dr. Call once it was returned by Rebecca, so I have not looked at his file and I don't know what's in it other here again than those few written communications were in, in the file between he and I. So. But you're telling me you have a report from him. Says he based his opinion on something that does not include this. I agree. Counsel can certainly test it on cross when the expert testifies. I think his whole file will be fair game for the expert. I think that's correct, Judge. Okay, and scene. So in one breath, Lyons tells the court he isn't familiar with his expert's file, not read it, and in the next, he verbally agrees the entire file is fair game for his expert's cross-examination. Y'all, this is not good for April. I don't know if you could pick up on that on your own without being an attorney, but holy shit. Yeah, no, not good at all. So the testimony itself, Dr. Call's testimony is horrible for April. He begins by calling April's behavior stupid. The specific example he gives is driving to Dallas to confront Terry in 1997, which you heard about a couple of episodes ago. Not a good look for April, but you might remember she was driving down because Terry was threatening to blackmail her with revenge porn and take the custody of her son away. Rather than try to box that horrible testimony in, April's attorney asks him if she was unreasonable, which is one, invading the province of the jury, and two, the doctor responds that yes, her behavior was unreasonable. We're going to talk about this more in detail in a moment, but proving self-defense, whether standard or battered woman's syndrome, requires a fact finder, which is the jury, to determine 
whether there has been a showing of reasonableness. So in other words, April had to show that she was being reasonable when she shot Terry for someone in her position and someone with her mindset, whether it was reasonable for her to shoot him when he was lunging at her. So this is the ultimate question for the jury. Yeah. Additionally, this testimony flies in the face of the Bechtel case, which we've talked about a little bit here. Bechtel established battered women's syndrome as a defense in Oklahoma and provides six guidelines for determining whether expert testimony is admissible. Number five in those guidelines is that the expert may not give an opinion on whether the defendant acted reasonably in perceiving herself in imminent danger. It would be bad enough if this happened once, but Lyons doubles down and asks the doctor to confirm that April was unreasonable. And of course, like Tim Harris sees no reason to object to the expert's improper testimony, right? Because expert is saying she wasn't reasonable. So uh, uh, you heard a few weeks ago how Rebecca Brett Nightingale kind of latched onto that in her closing. And if I'd been prosecuting the case, man, I would have been popping bottles at that point. Because that's the, that's the biggest part of the defense. Was she reasonable? Expert says, No. Yeah, and it's not like Lyons gives any indication that he recognizes this as bad. He returns to the theme of reasonableness multiple times during his his direct examination of Dr. Call. And Dr. Call, each time, every time is prompted, testifies that April was not behaving reasonably. I started to count the number of times Dr. Call testified that April was unreasonable, and when I got to seven, I gave up. These two, Lyons and Call, are almost putting on the most poorly formed insanity defense possible. And we didn't mention this in addition to being a PhD in forensic psychology, that Dr. Call is also a lawyer. And between the two of them, they couldn't seem to figure out that calling April stupid and unreasonable over and over and over would be harmful to her odds of acquittal where reasonableness is an essential part of the defense of self-defense, including battered women's syndrome self-defense. I would not believe that this had happened if I hadn't read it in the transcripts myself. It's absolutely bonkers. Here's one particularly damaging exchange where Dr. Call straight up testifies that April going over to Terry's house that night was unreasonable. We're going to read it together in role play. Role play. Are you, are you going to be Lions or Dr. Call? Neither I'll, one is great. <laughs> I'll be Lions this time. Okay. All right. She eventually goes to Mr. Carlton's house, does she not? Yes. This would be on the 28th of April, 1998? Yes. Why did she go to Terry Carlton's house if she was afraid of him, doctor? Well, her reasoning is, as stated on the to the police in the videotape, she wanted to go over there because she felt that he was going to come after her anyway, and then she thought that she could go over there and somehow make peace. Her thinking process, or her thoughts about going and making peace with a man that she feared, what does that tell you, Dr. Call? Well, it shows me that her thinking is not logical and reasonable. So April's decision to go over to Terry's house that night is one of the hardest things I think for any of us to understand, but especially the jury. And the whole reason this expert is here to testify is to aid April's defense and explain things that would be difficult to understand. To help the jury understand why someone suffering from battered women's syndrome would do the things that she does, because to you and me, right, like it doesn't make any sense and we can't empathize with it at all. And it just gets worse. There's an effort by Lyons to tie this unreasonable behavior back into battered women's syndrome by linking it to the concept of learned helplessness. Um, and I don't know, I don't want to go down a whole road on learned helplessness, but it's it's just part of um, a battered women's syndrome. 
Well, I mean, how would you describe it, Colleen? I don't know. So what our common colloquial understanding of learned helplessness is, is like a man sitting on a couch and his wife brings him dinner and she brings him drinks and she brings him his slippers. And when someone asks him, like, well, why don't you cook? And it's like, well, I just am not that good at it. I don't know. Like he's learned to benefit from not getting like from not having to do stuff, that's not what it means in this case. So like in learned helplessness means that the battered woman or person has reached out to authorities and people for help so many times and been denied that she has learned that there's no one coming to help her. And so when she reacts out of anger and frustration that the system has not helped her, um, that is a showing that she has like acquired this reactionary thing within the battered women's syndrome literature that is referred to as learned helplessness. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And so Lyons makes this attempt that we're going to also read this exchange to you guys, but he tries to tie some of April's behavior into that concept of learned helplessness, but the exchange just falls flat. I mean, Dr. Call is given a softball after softball after softball on this issue, and he just whiffs it. So here's the learned helplessness exchange. Have you heard the term learned helplessness? Yes. How does that factor into this overall equation, Dr. Call? Learned helplessness is a phenomenon that you will sometimes see in battered women's syndrome, where the battered woman has learned to be helpless, feels that they don't have much, if any, control. Did you see any of that in particular in this case? Yes. Her life at that point in that time frame had disintegrated. Her business was in bankruptcy. She was, her child was being taken care of by the father. She felt out of control. She was out of control. She was so out of control that people put her in a mental institution against her will. She was so out of control that she would run away from the mental institution. Her going to the Carlton residence, what significance does that have to you in the events that followed, Dr. Call? It's just, well, it's just a replay of what happened before. Going to the residence was a replay of what happened before, and unfortunately, it was the beginning of the end in this particular case. So, like, I mean, I don't know about you, Colleen. To me, it reads like Lyons is trying to get Dr. Call to explain to the jury that April's decision to go to Terry's that night is a form of learned helplessness. But, like, Dr. Call just, he, like, doesn't. He cannot pick up whatever effort Lyons is making to get the effective testimony for him. I mean, it's a nightmare to read for me. I can't imagine living it. And also, like, him defining learned helplessness as learning to be helpless... Yeah, this guy got paid 10 grand. Uh, you know it was 10 grand? Yeah, because Harris asks him on, on cross. Oh, I forgot that. Oh, my God. <laughs> 10 grand. Like, learned helplessness. It's, learned, it's learning to be helpless. Especially, I mean, I know a lot of people won't know anything about battered women's syndrome or anything about the literature that are listening to this. But this was like, so the Bechtel case came down in Oklahoma in, I think, 1992. Yeah. And this is 1999 by the time this has happened. Bechtel was just Oklahoma's case in battered women's syndrome. Nationally, battered women's syndrome became a thing in the 70s. Um, and so when we get our like groundwork case, groundbreaking case, Bechtel here in Oklahoma, the 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 literature is like just starting to develop. And one of the foundational things about battered women's syndrome is this concept early on, not now, and we'll hear that in another later episode, but <laughs> During this period of time, one of the foundational things is this idea of learned helplessness. And for him to be claiming to be a battered women's syndrome expert and being paid $10,000 and then not know how to explain that to the jury, when it is 
the cornerstone issue. And it would have explained so much about why she went there and why she continued to engage with him. That seemed so hard for the jury. It's so hard for the jury to be like, well, I'm a rational person and I would never do that. And it's like, no, because she's not acting rationally. And to explain the irrational behavior, this is the whole purpose of him being there. Yes, totally. Flabbergasted. Yeah, it's honestly like striking. It is striking. Yeah, yeah. And there's, I mean, there's more, right? Because the, the most, the, <laughs> like the stunning anyone reading, stunning to anyone reading these transcripts concludes his testimony by stating that April was psychotic mm-hmm. during the shooting, out of left fucking field. There's no defensive insanity available to April. Yeah. So Dr. Call, the reason that he's certified as an expert is because he is a clinical psychologist. And at the time, he was the state's only what's called a diplomate, which was like this very high ranking certification that he could get. And it allowed him to have like, you know, he was on the Divis board at the time, which is Domestic Violence Intervention Services. And I can see why someone who doesn't understand this issue very well would think that he would be a very qualified expert. But if you look at the cases that he's testified in previously, they're mostly insanity cases. And he's been trying to, he testifies for the defense a lot to try to get the defendant proven to be insane, that they did not understand the nature of reality when they committed their offense. That is so fundamentally different legally and in reality from defending someone on a self-defense claim where they have battered women's syndrome. It's literally not the same thing at all. And you would be trying to prove two totally different legal tests. And you can see him struggling with it because, like, obviously, he's more comfortable talking about the psychotic issues. He's more comfortable talking about the diagnoses. He's more comfortable talking about the personality tests and much less comfortable talking about things like learned helplessness and the other issues. The actual behaviors of a battered woman, which is what is necessary to help the jury understand, like you've been saying. It's just like... I think this came down to a really bad choice of expert, number one. And then number two, also bad preparation. We talk about this case all the time. Yeah. So much in this case, it just is like, it's stunning, man. So I did want to read, um, I'll just quickly read uh, Dr. Call's summary testimony. The last question that Lyons puts to him is just give us a summation of, of your opinion on on um, April. And here is what um, Dr. Call has to say. So, yes, it's my opinion that on April 27th and 28th, 1998, that the defendant, Miss Wilkins, was psychotic. Her psychosis was manifested, manifested itself in flight of ideas, tangential thinking, inadequate reality contact, agitation, paranoia, inadequate social judgment, mood swings, decreased need for sleep. Also, at the time of the shooting, she had injected, or around that time, she had injected amphetamines intravenously. This would have exacerbated the symptoms of her bipolar disorder. Likewise, on those dates, Miss Wilkins was involved in a long-term battering relationship with Mr. Carlton, deceased, and there exists significant corroborative information that Mr. Carlton physically and sexually assaulted Miss Wilkins and had threatened to kill her. The defendant's descriptions of the events of the early morning of April 28, 1998, are consistent with other similar reports about the couple's battering relationship, and it's my opinion that the balance of the data supports the conclusion that the defendant was psychotic at the time of the shooting, (laughs) believed she was in danger, 
and believed that her for- her use of force was justified. I mean, Colleen... I am, like, on the fucking on. floor right now. All those things that you were just saying, the tangential thinking, like, the, the inadequate reality, reality con- like connection or whatever. I mean, what, what's your reaction there? I mean, it's almost like he's just, like, gone on autopilot, dude. Yep. And, like, what he meant to say was that the defendant was suffering from battered women's syndrome, which, but, like... <laughs> He just says psychotic. It's like not. Twice. I'm sorry. He doesn't. And then it's like the battering relationship is such a like footnote in that whole soliloquy. I am like honestly like void of words. You guys should see Colleen's face. It is hard. She's bereft to right exist. Now. <laughs> it's like, crazy, right? Like, okay. This I think is what I was just talking about, which is that he is not. A battered woman syndrome expert. Nope. That's not what he's sitting on the stand testifying about. Nope. That's not in his mind what he's on the stand testifying about. Nope. He's on the stand testifying about her sanity and whether or yep. not she's insane. It's like everybody in this case has suddenly gotten confused about are what we putting defense? on a sanity defense or are we putting on a battered women's defense? Like, yeah. uh, hello? Have you been here the last two weeks? What are we doing? What are we doing? Yeah. Yeah. It just is so ineffective. It's, it's not even just ineffective. It's harmful. It's literally, this person is in prison for life. She has not been on meds for the last 20 years. She does not have bipolar. bipolar. She's leading a cohort of women to lose over 100 pounds within a month. This person is not psychotic. Not psychotic. They they haven't had another, quote, I'm using air quotes, psychotic episode since that time they shot their massively psychotic abusive ex. Right. Yeah. Who is this guy? Why is How he... did he get in here? How did he get in here? <laughs> we still haven't gotten a call back from Lions, by the way. I don't anticipate that we're going to get no, one. No, probably not. But... Not at this point. Ugh. I'm so confused. I'm just so confused. Yep. Like, that this is a court of law in the United States of America. And it's the... a shit show. Part of the problem, honestly, is that who's going to object to this? Right? Well, it's not Tim Harris. No, I mean, that's what you were saying before. Like, he's sitting over there eating popcorn and, like, having the best time ever because he just won his case that he's been working on for the past month. Yep. Um, There's just, like, there's no way out of this. It just, it's like, it is almost like these two people are talking for the first time on this day. I mean. This guy that he paid 10 grand to. It's like, well, he didn't read his file. Didn't read the file. I mean, it doesn't. $10,000 file, me. man. There's a ton of issues with the way he went about forming this horrible, quote, opinion one in particular is that he used the MMPI, the multiphasic personality inventory, when he was evaluating April. We spoke to a couple of experts who have testified in courts frequently for the prosecution and for the defense about battered woman syndrome. Without even knowing the details of this case, here is what one of those experts had to say about the use of this particular tool in evaluating someone who's been the victim of abuse. In the field of domestic violence, one of the things that we've learned and is now a practice is that we don't refer victims to get psychiatric evaluations as a result of their victimization because those psychi- psych, you know, the psych evaluations weren't set up or designed for people experiencing trauma. So if you do, what is it, the MMPI 2 or something, that big 3,000 question assessment, a million questions. Um, So you do that assessment. That is the standard that is used for psychological evaluations. 
it asks questions about, are people following you? Do you think that people are listening to you or that people may be tracking you? So then you got, and, and for a victim of domestic violence, hell yes. I think somebody's tracking me. I think somebody's listening to me. I think somebody's following me because my abuser is. But then it's going to rate you as like schizophrenic <laughs> because those things are actually your reality. But the MMPI doesn't account for that. Now, I'm not going to play too many clips from our expert interviews today. You'll get to hear what they have to say about intimate partner violence in an upcoming episode. But this clip struck me. Out the gate, Dr. Call is using a tool that by modern standards is just not effective at evaluating someone who has been abused. But it's actually detrimental, the fact that he uses the MMPI. There's several places in the testimony when he comes back to his evaluation of April and the MMPI. One of them I found to be particularly interesting where it's a really long examination, like lots and lots of questions. Yeah. And we've talked again and again about how she's very detail-oriented. Well, there were some questions that she didn't uh, didn't feel comfortable answering without asking follow-up questions. So she put little Xs next to all of those questions that she just didn't feel comfortable answering without follow-up. Yeah, it was like 37 of the questions or something. Yep. And instead of using this as a way of showing how bright she is and how much she wants to understand before she fully commits to an answer, they use this as a way of calling her uh, manipulative and sort of like diabolical, right? So ridiculous. Yeah. But Harry, Harry. (laughs) Good old Harry. (laughs) Harris really zeroes in on the results of this test and it showed April had supposedly grandiose thinking about herself that she denied responsibility for her actions, that she was hostile, irritable, and resentful, that she perceived the world as threatening, that she perceives herself as unjustly blamed for other, other people's problems. All the things that are flawed from the gate due to the manner in which the questions are posed and the nature of the trauma experienced by abuse survivors. So Call's direct testimony is flawed, to put it lightly, It causes serious problems for April. It's fucked up, but that's nothing compared to what Tim Harris does to April's case on cross. I wish we had time to take you through the entirety of Harris's cross-examination of Dr. Call. Unfortunately, we don't. This podcast does have to end at some point. But we need to highlight the improper character evidence that Tim Harris introduces through Dr. Call and through his expert file. Um, this shit would be great fodder for an evidence final exam or a trial skills class. It's bananas. So before we deep dive into the exact character evidence he winds up being allowed to introduce, we're going to give you guys like a high level look at the rules about character or um, what's sometimes called propensity evidence. So the rule under Oklahoma law, it's found at 12 OS 2404 and subsection B states... Evidence of other crimes, wrongs, or acts is not admissible to prove the character of a person in order to show action in conformity therewith. Colleen, what does that mean in regular people's terms? In regular people terms, if you've done something bad in your past, potentially criminal, or even just something like that people wouldn't think is very nice, um, that's not allowed to come into the trial because that's not what you're being tried on today. You're being tried on whether or not you committed the crime on the date that it was alleged. Yeah, and so it, it can't come in, but the, the rule continues. It may, however, be admissible for other purposes, such as proof of motive, opportunity, intent, preparation, plan, knowledge, identity, or absence of mistake or accident. 
Uh, so you can't introduce evidence of other bad acts or crimes to show that somebody acted in conformity therewith. So like, if you've robbed before, you can't put that in necessarily to show that you robbed this time, right? Yeah, that's basically true. And this is, you know, this is a tried and true evidence rule. So it, it was basically, you know, before this was written, if the prosecution could show that you've committed the crime in the past, it ended up being so prejudicial um, that so many people were getting wrongfully convicted on things that they had done in the past. It's like, we're in America, we're not trying you on every bad thing you've ever done. We're trying you on the thing that we're alleging in the information that you did. Yeah, it's honestly beautiful, I think. It's what it's it's like not to get poetic about our, our system, but like it really it is designed to protect a defendant's presumption of innocence. Um, and it's one of the most powerful tools that we have to do that. So, uh, but listen, um, you, can, you can't introduce these bad acts to show somebody did something in conformity therewith, but you can introduce it for another purpose. And now I know, I hear you. You're saying, Leslie, obviously what Tim is about to do with this other bad acts evidence is introduce it for another purpose. And he's not doing it to show that April acted in conformity therewith. And listen, I hear you, but my response is... He's trying to impeach the expert opinion of Dr. Call to disprove his conclusion that April was a battered woman by asking him if, hypothetically, his opinion would change if he knew about the three bad acts that um, we're going to discuss in a minute. So there are rules about asking hypothetical questions. Generally speaking, hypothetical questions can't be asked of every witness. Um, you can ask them of ex experts. You can ask them of um reputation witnesses when you're allowed to have a reputation witness um, testify. Except when it comes to experts, the rule in Oklahoma since 1928, motherfuckers, because I stayed up last night finding the oldest case <laughs> I could that was citing this rule. Here's what it is. This is the rule in Oklahoma. Hypothetical questions must be based upon facts as to which there is such evidence that a jury might reasonably find that they are established but it is not necessary that the facts should be clearly proved. So you can read the workers' compensation case from 1928 where the guy lost his leg and that rule was first clearly articulated. The case is Mead, Bros v. Watts. It's 1928, OK, 765. And there's the rub, friends. What Tim Harris goes on to do with the court's blessing is toss out wildly unproven, untested, unsubstantiated bad acts allegedly done by April for which there's no supporting evidence before the jury. And so just to note, this rule is not unique to Oklahoma. I know Wisconsin has a similar rule, and I'm sure there are others I didn't do a full survey of the 50 states, but this is like a pretty sound rule in my opinion. Most states would probably want to adopt it. Lyons, for what it's worth, makes one of the hardest pushes to keep this evidence out. And he's unsuccessful. Colleen, you want to tell him why? So Lyons really does try to keep what ultimately goes down from going down. He does, um, he asks for a bench uh, conference. He files for, he tries to file for a mistrial. He's not successful. And Lyons basically argues the rule that Leslie just read from Mead Brothers versus Watts. But he doesn't cite any case law. And it's always better to have a case reference for the court. It just makes your objection more clear to the court and in the record, should you find yourself on an appeal. Even if he had cited the case, Tim Harris and Rebecca Nightingale probably would still have gotten around it. And that's because Harris and Nightingale do the whole as an officer of the court thing during the bench conference to assure the judge that they will prove this evidence with a living, breathing human being that's ready to take the stand. We're going to read through the bench conference quickly so you can see how this plays out. 
So Harris tees up these hypotheticals and Lyons objects. During the bench conference, Harris tells the court that he, he wants to ask three hypotheticals, each one designed to test whether the information would have changed Dr. Call's opinion had he known it at the time he formed the opinion. One, that April once kicked Terry in the crotch at the Acura dealership. Two, that she slapped him in the face at the Acura dealership on another occasion. And three, that she swung open-handed at him, leaving scratch marks on his neck after kicking an Acura on the showroom floor on a third occasion. Now, before we read the transcript, a reminder, no evidence has been introduced at this point to substantiate any of these three incidents. And Harris had April on the stand for a full day on cross-examination. If he had this information and he wanted to ask her about it, that would have been the time to do it because he could ask leading questions on cross that would have allowed him to say, isn't it true that at the Acura dealership on said date, you kicked Terry in the crotch? And she would have had to answer yes or no. Lyons actually tries to make that argument, so we're going to see that in just a second. So Harris explains to the court the three incidents and says... Oh, so I think one of us should be the court and one of us should just be all the attorneys because, like, three attorneys talk during this. okay. Okay, so... Do you want to be the attorneys? I'll be the attorneys. I'm Tim Harris right now, and I am going to ask him if he were presented with that information, whether that would modify his opinion regarding her reactions under the battered woman syndrome. And now I'm Chris Lyons. Your Honor, my objection is that the fact that the defendant or the state is trying to elicit information that they could have gotten and put on in their case in chief concerning propensities of the defendant, I think it's improper approach of cross-examination, of presenting testimony and evidence. I think, Your Honor, seeking examination of a doctor in areas about other people, other places, other events, quite frankly, Judge, are subject to tests of truth and veracity. I don't have any of that information other than a calendar that the state supplied one witness. None of that information has been presented or tested. I think it's highly prejudicial to the defendant to leave the jury in the state of mind that these things may have occurred without her being in the position that to be able to refute that information, Judge. Well, I'm assuming that Mr. Harris has a good faith basis for asking these questions. He's not just pulling this information out of the blue, are you, Tim? I'm Tim now. Well, Judge, I've got a live, breathing human being waiting to take the stand, if necessary, to corroborate this. Well, it seems to me you ought to be able to test the doctor's opinions by asking these questions and asking if this would change his mind or opinion. That seems to me to be fair cross-examination. And I think as an officer of the court, if he tells me he's got someone that can corroborate, he ought to be able to ask these questions. I'm Chris Lyons. Well, that's fine, Judge. It's my information based upon my examination of these witnesses, not these witnesses that he says he has, but this was all actions and conduct by Melinda Wallace, Judge, not by the defendant. And he's wrong. It's going to create some major problems, Judge. Mr. Harris, I'm not wrong, Judge. It was personally verified by counsel in preparation for this cross-examination. Uh, Let the record reflect Miss Brett is shaking her head affirmatively. Ms. Nightingale, I have personally interviewed this witness who told me the same information. I have interviewed her. Dan Brown from our office has interviewed her, and Tim and I interviewed her yesterday. I think it's fair cross-examination, and I also, I disagree. I'm not sure they could put this on in their case in chief. You would have been objecting its proof of other crimes. Chris Lyons. Well, no, I think it would have been part of the evidence presented as part of their relationship, Judge. Well, whatever. 
I'm going to overrule your objection, note your exception. Okay, so Tim and Dr. Call go on to have their back and forth about these hypotheticals. And the jury hears these incidents only in the form of a question from Tim Harris to Dr. Call. So, of course, the jury wants to know more about these incidents. This is crazy. I forgot about this. (laughs) Jesus. And remember, when Nightingale and Harris gave their assurances as officers of the court that they could bring in a living, breathing witness to corroborate these incidents. Well, they don't. No one is ever called to support these statements made by Tim Harris. But the jury doesn't have any reason to set these incidents aside or question whether April did these things. There is no limiting instruction requested or given. And all of this is more prejudicial than probative in every sense of the word, which is honestly the baseline for whether the relevant evidence comes in at all. It defies Oklahoma law on cross-examination of experts, and it belies the spirit and purpose of the rule against character evidence. And, like this whole tangled-up evidentiary mess, further illuminates the need to keep prejudicial statements like this by counsel from the jury because of Lyon's arguments that he investigated these incidents and they are apparently on someone's calendar. Real Brett Kavanaugh vibes. And Lyons had interviewed witnesses who stated these acts were done by Melinda Wallace. That was Terry's other ex-girlfriend who he fought with all the time. If they happened at all. So there are huge unanswered questions about if these incidents ever occurred and if they did, if it was April who did these things. But like none of that ever gets cleared up for the jury. So we have this other extremely damaging point of incidents where April is made out to be the aggressor, but it's wholly unsubstantiated. It's honestly bananas. And it just should have never happened. I mean, I agree with Chris Lyons when he motioned for a mistrial, I think, mistrials have been granted for less than that i mean like any time character evidence is like the holy grail you just don't go there man like and and i've heard you know i've heard other attorneys do this on expert testimony and it's it's always kind of a gray area where you're you're asking them about facts that they didn't have at the time they formed their opinion but like you said those are facts you have to bring up at trial and at least test yeah yeah and like like tim harris was putting on all kinds of evidence in his case in chief of April's um, like aggressiveness. Cause that he gets to do that to undercut the idea that she was about um, woman. the end, like not the first aggressor. Right. So like he could have put on whoever these fucking witnesses he claims to have, he could have put them on and he didn't do it. Why? I could have at least tried. And I, like, frankly, because he Lyons. didn't want to subject them to cross-examination about whether or not that was actually Melinda Wallace. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. It's just fucking crazy that it even is allowed to happen. It's fucking crazy to me. Okay, so to close out this episode, we need to discuss the elements of self-defense and how battered women's syndrome affects those elements. So here is the jury instruction on standard self-defense under Oklahoma law. This is not a battered women's syndrome self-defense. This is just plain self-defense. So it's it's Oklahoma Uniform Jury Instruction CR 8-46, defense of self-defense, justifiable use of deadly force. A person is justified in using deadly force in self-defense if that person reasonably believed that the use of deadly force was necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm to him or herself, or to terminate or prevent the commission of a forcible felony against him or herself. 
Self-defense is a defense, although the danger to life or personal security may not have been real, if a reasonable person in the circumstances and from the viewpoint of the defendant would have reasonably believed that he or she was in imminent danger of great bodily harm or death. Now, whether you are dealing with regular self-defense, as in the instruction I just read, or battered women's syndrome self-defense, the state has the burden to prove the defendant was not acting in self-defense, and they must prove that beyond a reasonable doubt. Um, Beyond a reasonable doubt is only in criminal cases. So the state has to put on enough evidence to overcome April's claim of self-defense, and they must do it beyond a reasonable doubt. Key to the self-defense is reasonableness, which is where the battered woman's syndrome becomes relevant for April. There are elements of objective reasonableness and subjective reasonableness in both standard self-defense and battered women's syndrome self-defense, but battered women's syndrome turns the objective reasonableness component into a subtler art. And so here's what the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals said regarding reasonableness and battered women in Bechtel v. State, which is, again, the precedent-setting case allowing the defense of battered women's syndrome self-defense, which, as Colleen mentioned, uh, decided in 1982, six years before April shot Terry. So the key to the defense of self-defense is reasonableness. A defendant must show that she had a reasonable belief as to the imminence of great bodily harm or death and as to the force necessary to, to compel it. Several of the psychological symptoms that develop in one suffering from the syndrome are particularly relevant to the standard of reasonableness and self-defense. One such symptom is a greater sensitivity to danger, which has come about because of the intimacy and history of the relationship. Dr. Walker, in her offer of proof below, explained that the abuse occurs in a cycle. This is known as the cycle theory, which consists of three phases. The first phase is the, quote, tension-building period. The second stage is the, quote, acute explosion period, where the abuse takes place. The third stage is the, quote, loving contrition period. It is during the tension-building period that the battered woman develops a heightened sensitivity to any kinds of cues of distress. Thus, because of her intimate knowledge of her batterer, the battered woman perceives danger faster and more accurately, as she is more acutely aware that a new or escalated violent episode is about to occur. What is or is not an overt demonstration of violence varies with the circumstances. Under some circumstances, a slight movement may justify instant action because of reasonable apprehension of danger. Under other circumstances, this would not be so, and it is for the jury and not for the judge passing upon the weight and effect of the evidence to determine how this may be. Indeed, considering her particular circumstances, the battered woman's perception of the situation and her belief as to the imminence of great bodily harm or death may be deemed reasonable. And that's Bechtel v. State, 1992, OKCR 55. When I think about this, it is like super duper confusing, but there are a couple of elements to self-defense, right? So like you have the larger like umbrella of self-defense and and the elements of that are, is the harm imminent? So is it going to happen right now? Is the harm 
deadly or likely to be deadly? And is that is that a reasonable calculation, right, on your behalf? And then is the person who is threatening you the aggressor in the situation? So you can't run into a bar and start hitting people with broken bottles and somebody stabs you with another broken bottle and you say it's self-defense, right? Like you were the aggressor. And then within that umbrella, there's another tiny umbrella, which is the reasonableness calculation. And like it said earlier, it doesn't matter if it actually was a threat to the person's life. What matters is what was happening in that person's head in the moment when they took the action, whether or not if you put yourself in their shoes in that moment, would it be reasonable to do what they did? And all that battered women syndrome does really is say that it's probably more likely for a battered woman, for a person who has been battered to be acting reasonably it's probably more likely because they are high, they're highly attuned to their situation. They are highly attuned to danger. And if they took this action, it's probably reasonable in a way that it wouldn't be maybe for somebody else. And you have to, as a juror, put yourself in that situation in your mind. And it's difficult, especially if, if someone hasn't experienced this themselves. But that's what's being asked of them. I don't think they really understood that. No, I don't think they did it at all. And it's like, it is, it like you're saying, it's, it is, it, because what Bechtel does is actually, in that opinion, they write out the new instruction for battered women's syndrome. And the, the change that they make, so the instruction that you read, it uses the word reasonable or reasonably three times. The, um, it's a, it's a person reasonably believes the use of deadly force is necessary. And, that uh, it doesn't have to be real if a reasonable person in those circumstances would reasonably believe that the, the danger was imminent, right? So it doesn't have to be real, but if they reasonably believed it in, the, in that, those circumstances, um, you still get self-defense. So like the change to the instruction, so I mean, do you want to go ahead and read that? It's so subtle, the change. Yeah, so okay, here's instruction for battered woman syndrome self-defense. A person is justified in using deadly force in self-defense if that person believed that use of deadly force was necessary to protect herself from imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. Self-defense is a defense, although the danger to life or personal security may not have been real, if a person in the circumstances and from the viewpoint of the defendant would reasonably have believed that she was in imminent danger or death or great bodily harm. It sounds the exact same to me, Leslie. Like, what is the difference? Right. What is the difference? So, like, I have struggled to wrap my brain around this um, for, for, like, this whole time, right? The difference is that um, a battered woman may appear unreasonable in her thinking. And she may, like, she doesn't. So that's where you have to, this this idea of empathy that you were talking about when we did the voir dire episode, like, we needed jurors who could empathize because the whole way of proving this is to make sure that they understood what they had to go back there and do was to put themselves in April's shoes. Not so, woman. okay, this is another way of saying I'm finally understanding you now. It's not, it's not asking you, the jury foreman, the six foot tall banker, white man, if you would have found it reasonable, if you were in that situation, that is, 
that is the basic self-defense standard. If you jury foreman in this situation would have found this reasonable, then it's reasonable. Right. But in battered women's syndrome, that's not what you're being asked to do. You're being asked to say, if you six foot tall white man jury foreman were in, were April. Yeah. Five foot four, 105 pound woman against a man who's been fighting you for the past two two years and raped you several times. Would, if you were her, would it have been reasonable? It's not if it were you. Right. Exactly. That's exactly. That is exactly. I mean, that's exactly how I understand it. If you're an expert on this and you think we've got call it all us, fucking please. wrong, please call us because we want your help. No, but like, <laughs> I've spent a lot of time thinking about this because I, I had to read these instructions over and over again to really. First, I was like, "What the fuck is the difference?" Just like you were saying, and then I had to go back and figure out. Oh, regular self-defense includes the word reasonableness three times. Battered women includes it once. So there's still a component of reasonableness, but it's this wholly subjective reasonableness component. It's reduced. It's, re- it's a it's reduced a much burden reduced of reasonableness. Burden. Yeah, it's a reduced burden of reasonableness. Absolutely, it's how I would describe it. So... Um, In theory, it should be easier to prove a battered woman's defense than a regular self-defense. But to be honest, I would have rather attacked this from a plain self-defense standard. I, I agree. I agree. I think and this is something that we've kind of talked about, like, because it's like a straightforward self-defense case if you just look at the 30 seconds before the shooting, right? Yes. Handcuffed, I'm going to rape you, and I'm going to shoot you. Okay, I'm going to take you okay, out. Okay, I guess I have to shoot you because you're going to shoot me. You're going to kill me. Self-defense. Bing, bang, boom. We all, as reasonable people, I would think, if you're handcuffed and you've got a guy that's bigger than you and you're com- he's coming at you. If, if you six foot tall jury foreman, if man, you're handcuffed and the guy's coming at you with a you're gun. You're handcuffed. A dude tells you I'm going to rape you up the ass and kill you and then I'm going to kill myself. And you happen to be able to reach back and grab a gun. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's him. He would do that. He would. he would shoot that dude. Yeah. Any of us would. Any of us would do it to protect our own life. Right. And so the reason I think the battered women's syndrome is even relevant to this case at all is to explain all of her other Actions. behavior because her behavior is is spinning out at the end of the relationship and you need somebody you need an expert you needed an expert in there to really explain that to really you needed an expert to explain why she went over there in the first place and why she ran from parkside and why she did the other things that she did and why she started using drugs like i was talking yeah. to somebody today and they were like bro it's not ptsd post-traumatic stress it was not post-traumatic stress it was ESD. Yeah. Acute stress disorder, it I think was, is what they yeah. call it. Yeah. But it was happening. Happening. It wasn't to like her. she never even had time to process the Right. Trauma. There was no post trauma. It was ongoing, constant. Yeah, totally. Totally. So that so she gets she does get the instruction. She does get the um battered women's syndrome instruction, right? And that's instruction number twenty eight. Uh, the jury didn't necessarily know they were getting a battered women's syndrome instruction instead of the regular self-defense instruction. That if the instructions aren't titled for the jury and they are merely given a number in the order in which the parties agreed to number them. In April's case, battered women's syndrome self-defense instruction was number 28. That means there were 27 other instructions that they had to read back there in the room before they even got to this. And we're going to drop this instruction in the show notes so you can see it and see what the jury underlined on it, which is interesting. Um, We know from our discussion with the juror that April's defense wasn't really considered very much by them. Like most of their discussion centered on sentencing. Here's the juror again that we spoke to. I don't think anybody 
said she wasn't guilty. But because she shot him and she said she did. And there wasn't enough compelling evidence that she was really defending herself. I mean, the stuff that I heard in your podcast was so much more than we knew. Really, I was frustrated because there were only two choices for jury verdicts. We were not offered anything less. Because I knew she was, you know, she was pushed to a limit. And so there was, there was no other opportunity. It was first degree murder or first degree murder, murder without parole. Believe it or not, the majority of our time was spent convincing two jurors that she did not deserve to go to prison for the rest of her life with no possibility of parole. As, as I tried to explain to these two holdouts on the jury, I said, you know, she is not a danger to people walking down the sidewalk. You know, this was, this was a very special case. So the bottom line after listening to that is, like, what shocked me the most is that, like, if I had been in this jury, and granted, whatever, like, I'm an attorney and I would have, like, thought about this differently than everybody else, but, like, if I had been even a layperson in this jury, the, the most interesting thing about this case is the self-defense part of it. Like, do you believe her when she says he was lunging at her? Do you believe her life was in reasonable danger? That is the most interesting thing about this. And they didn't even spend five minutes discussing whether or not he was legitimately lunging at her. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. That messes with me. The state just outlawed Lyons. I mean, he got run over by those two. Fucking beep, beep. Bro, it's sad. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, in my opinion, Dr. Call, he did irreparable damage to this case with his testimony. He should never have been up there. And his, I mean, his resume was stunning, like, you know, Colleen, like you talked about, but his his clear understanding of battered women's syndrome was completely stunted. I mean, his testimony injects unnecessary doubt into April's credibility. And he goes on to testify to the ultimate issue by saying she is not reasonable. So damage fucking done, man. The jury returned a life sentence within 12 hours of being charged to deliberate. <sighs> folks, this was a lot. I have very strong feelings about Dr. Call. Obviously, I've shared a lot of them today. I just ultimately do not think he was the right choice for this. And it was ultimately like, I mean, you're, it is the nail of many nails in yeah. the coffin. Yeah. Super glued it shut. Yeah. <sighs> We know a lot of this just rubs salt in the physical and mental wounds April suffered during her relationship with Terry. The state of Oklahoma vigorously prosecuted a battered woman who shot her ex-fiance in self-defense as he was attempting to rape her and after he threatened to kill her. They outlawed Chris at every step and achieved an unjust result, a life sentence for April. This was self-defense, and every day that April spends in prison is another injustice. But we won't be able to change anything of that on our own. We need your help. Please follow Oklahoma Appleseed on social media and the free AprilWilkins.com website. We'll be posting updates and information about how to help. There will be opportunities to do things as simple as sign a petition or get involved with a rally or meet us up at the Capitol. We're gearing up for a fight to bring April home, but we absolutely cannot do this on our own. We need you and we hope you'll join us. 
Still to come on Panic Button Season 1. We'll talk about the appeals. We'll talk about April's life in prison. We're going to talk to domestic violence experts, survivors, and we're going to talk about global issues around criminalized survivorship and how the legal system can start to right some of these wrongs. Panic Button is a co-production of Oklahoma Appleseed Center for Law and Justice and Leslie Briggs. We're your hosts, Colleen McCarty and Leslie Briggs. Our theme music is Velvet Rope by Guillaume. The production team is Leslie Briggs and Rusty Rowe. We're recorded at Bison and Bean Studio in Tulsa. Special thanks to Lynn Worley, Amanda Ross, and Ashlyn Faulkner for their work on this case. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic abuse, use a safe computer and contact the National Domestic Violence Hotline at thehotline.org or call 1-800-799-7233. Help others find our show by leaving us a rating and writing a review. Follow us at OK underscore Appleseed across all social platforms. You can subscribe right now on the Apple Podcasts app by clicking on our podcast logo and then hit the subscribe button. If you want to continue the conversation with other listeners, 